You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, host of Food for the Future, a weekly podcast that brings the humanities to today's food dialogue by showcasing everyday people trying to make a difference. This show is part of the series Food for Thought, featuring stories from big thinkers who spend their lives envisioning a flourishing food system in their local communities and for our entire human family. We'll be speaking about cranberry farming in Canada with Brian DeWitt from The Bog, Riverside Cranberry Farm in Fort Langley, British Columbia. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Peggy. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here. Brian, you own Riverside Cranberry Farm. Tell us all about it. It's a time of year. We're looking for cranberries. Everybody wants cranberries. Canadian produced cranberries. Wonderful. What goes into Riverside Cranberry Farm? Yeah, so we're a family run farm here. Uh, my wife and I and our five children, cranberry farming for about 13 years on this property. And we started about, about 23 years ago um, with my father. And yeah, so. There's a lot of work that goes into it, um, a lot of field development, plant science, and a lot of nature as well. We're just doing what we do. It's it's an exciting job, and we love it. I bet. We're just doing what we do. And so you've been working with your dad, you had said, and you've got your wife and five kids, so a real family farm across some generations. And how did you decide on cranberries? Oh, now you got to go back like... 30, probably 30 years or more, um, I was working on a dairy farm and, and there was a, a large piece of wetland across the road that was being developed into a cranberry bog. And I got to know the the owner of that land and, and I watched this go on for three or four years. And it just fascinated me to, to watch the transformation of what was essentially swamp into structured fields. I can't point a finger exactly at when I made the decision to go into cranberries, but uh, the opportunities were just there pointing me into it. And we just, we took advantage of that. Decided to go for it. And here we are talking about your cranberries at Riverside Cranberry Farm. So I know I'm sure with cranberries, it must be like everything else. We think about different varieties of apples or different varieties of pears, but there must be varieties of cranberries. How many are there? And what's the difference between some of the main ones? So there would be hundreds of different varieties of cranberries, hundreds, but I would estimate maybe a dozen to 20 are commercially grown. Yeah, you're right. They all have different attributes. So uh, one of the varieties that we grow is it's more recently developed, I would say within the last, well, 13 years, obviously, we were one of the, the first ones planting it here. It was developed at Rutgers University for an earlier harvest. It doesn't need as many growing days in order to reach maturity. It has high yields as well. So when you're looking at at farmland, which I'm sure where you are is extremely expensive as well, you need to look at maximizing your return per acre. So when you compared traditional yields of 15,000 to 20,000 pounds per acre to the new varieties coming out at 30, 40, even 50,000 pounds per acre, didn't require a whole lot of difficult math to realize that planting those varieties, even with the additional input costs, just made sense in the long run. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's the one variety. There's a whole bunch of other ones that have more attributes towards darker color, less tartness, obviously the earlier ripening that we have, uh, larger berries, higher yields, better keeping quality in terms of fresh fruit. And a lot of the new ones, they're just crosses between traditional varieties because the cranberry is unique in the sense that if you cross-pollinate, you actually end up with different varieties. There is some uh, obviously some science there to yield the genetic results that we want. 
Fascinating. And that earlier harvest means we can have fresh cranberries longer. Now, you mentioned that when you were first introduced to cranberries, you saw a bog. And tell us, for listeners and myself, don't really, I don't know myself what goes into it. So what kind of growing conditions do they like? And how do you grow cranberries? Yeah, so so typically what a farmer would look for would be um, more of a, a peat structured soil with a very low pH, somewhere in the you know four to five range for pH. We have some of that out here, but we've discovered as well that I mean you could grow these these cranberries on clay as long as you provide a surface soil that allows them to root up, and then we can manage the pH. Uh, so typically, like what we did on our farm here after we had laser leveled, was we took uh, sawdust, just fir and hemlock sawdust from the mills that are located close by, and we put down a ground cover of about five to six inches, and then just took cuttings and rototilled them in or grew plugs and planted plugs. And then with with the fertilizer, as we're growing, we can add sulfur, and that drops the pH. So, But typically, I mean, peat is by far the best soil. Isn't that amazing that we've got such different soil conditions, such different land and just everything else that's in the spaces that we're farming in biodiversity, weather conditions, all of that, that you can look at something and go, okay, we're going to put down some sawdust and we're going to do this. We're going to lower the pH. And then we get these amazing cranberries and just a testament to that intangible knowledge almost that farmers have. It's your years of observation understanding your analysis and then there you go and you've been able to increase your cranberry production you had said roughly uh, from 15,000 up to 30 50,000 but yeah again you know nature nature gets in there and we've had years where we've we have done nothing different absolutely nothing and the yields are up 50% and vice versa right uh, the next time they're down 50% because of a weather event in the winter or something that does some damage there's just you know it's farming it's very hard to describe to somebody who works in a structured environment that we deal with so many different variables. We're just hopeful at the end that we have a good outcome. I mean, there's only so much that we can control in the uh, in the equation, right? Right. And that you've got to sort of be able to weather that ambiguity in terms of your livelihood. Very interesting. So you've mentioned a couple of different varieties and you've been talking about increased yields, but I'm just so fascinated because the cranberries are generally uniform by the time they ever get to me, I buy them at a store. But what's the largest cranberry you've ever seen? Well, we, we have this thing when we do some fresh fruit on our farm. So when we're running the cleaning line and uh, we manually sort through at the end, we're looking for defects that have made it through the equipment. There's always this kind of ongoing competition with the staff that's working to see if we can find the largest berry and almost one inch in diameter. And we've had cranberries that big come through the equipment. Like it's wow. stunning how large they are. To put it in perspective, they weigh about four times as much as a normal cranberry. And does anyone taste them? Like I know when we find, oh, great big strawberry. And sometimes you're just disappointed by the really big strawberry because it's not as flavorsome as some of the smaller ones. So has anybody tried one of those big berries? We have. And, and you know, tart is tart. Like when they're sour, they're sour. So it's, you know, <laughs> maybe like you said, with the big strawberry, the sweetness is maybe missing. They're, they're more watery tasting. You don't get that with a the cranberry. They're the same berry. They're just a lot larger. Big burst of flavor. So what's a typical year like for you? How does, how does the cranberry season unfold, harvest? What are the steps? Yeah. So the nice thing about the cranberry is it's a perennial. So once we've planted it, ideally you don't want to have to replant again in your lifetime if you can. Typically what we do, I'll start in January. It's winter, it's wet. Uh, If there's a nice stretch of weather in there, we might take the opportunity to prune the plants. We tend to do that every year just to to keep the canopy thin enough so that we get good airflow and it, it reduces rot. 
uh, makes it easier for weed control, stuff like that. So that's that's kind of what your early uh, or late winter, I guess, into early spring. And then as things start to wake up, we, we get onto weed control. And that's pretty much the biggest thing up until about uh, end of May and June. Then we go right into we're bringing the bees in. We're looking for the early flowers tend to start around the last week of May. And then by mid-June, we're at full bloom already, mid to late June. doesn't take long before you start seeing berries forming. Uh, we tend to do, again, weed control through that whole period because that's the only times we can really be on the field without damaging uh, the berries. Once we get bloom, we fertilize like crazy just because that plant is just pulling so much nutrients up to, to build that berry. And we'll run that through right until about the end of July. August is usually quiet. It's hot. The berries are starting to soften up, so we stay out of the fields as much as possible. And then, yeah, early September, we start getting the equipment ready. Probably by the second week of September, we'll be really pushing the fresh fruit. And then we go right into the wet harvest. And once we're done my farm, we're on my dad's farm and my brother's farm. And so, yeah, by I think this year we finished October 18th, we were done with the harvest. And then I usually just disappear for a few days because... I need a break. <laughs> Tired, worked hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we also like outside of, outside of the cranberries themselves, you know, we've developed the start of a, what's proven to be a fairly uh, popular brand. And so we're doing a lot of product development as well. We've got a bunch of co-packers that we work with. So, you know, servicing that side, it's almost like a, another little business inside of the business. And that's starting to take up more and more of our time, which, which is what we intended it to do because, you know, once we're done harvest, we can have a fairly significant quiet period in the winter. So this just fills up a lot of hours with that. You know, we enjoy the, the kids' sports and stuff like that in their school year. But yeah, when it's harvest time, it's it's full go. Like, you know, we got days on a Saturday when we're running a tour and, and my seven-year-old daughter's working out in the field with us with their waders on pulling the boom of cranberries. And <laughs> yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty neat to see. I love it that the kids can grow up on a farm. Yeah, I, I bet they very much appreciate that. You described a very busy year, and uh, I encourage all listeners to go to uh, Riverside Cranberry Farm. You can search it and find it, but you've got an incredible website, great branding. So I'm sure that the uh, product development that you're working on and have available through the bog is uh, really, really valuable. So back to harvest then, Brian. Um, how long, once the berries are ripe, do you have to be harvested once they're ready to go? Yeah, well, the nice, that's the nice thing about the cranberries it's pretty unique in the sense that it doesn't tend to spoil on the vine until it gets frost on it or freezes you know so we we harvested here on let's say we started the third week of september we were done on our farm by thanksgiving i know there's a lot of water involved just give us the high level on the harvest of cranberries it's it's unique i don't think there's any other fruit or vegetable that is harvested that way is uh, possibly. I, I can't say I've heard of one. Yeah. So once we determine that we're ready to harvest and the fruit's ready to go, we'll put about, say, five inches of water into the field, just enough to cover the plant or, or just below the very tip of the plant. But mostly uh, the berries would be submerged. And, and this is where having a level field is key because any uh, elevation difference in the field, you have to raise the water to cover it to that height. We'll bring the water up to cover the plant. And then we use what's called a harrow. So we drive a tractor in the field with tracks on it. And then at the front and the back, of the tractor there's just a sliding device that slides along the vines and pops the berries loose the berries got hollow air pockets in it so as soon as it it's free of the vine it just pops up and flows to the surface so once we've got the full field harrowed then we'll bring the water level up even deeper 15 inches 20 inches of water 
And then we have big floating booms that we, we link together and then we corral all the berries into a circle and we'll pull it to the one corner of the field. And then there's various methods to pull it out. Uh, we use a, a vacuum pump that sucks the fruit and, and the water into it through a pipe up over top of a screen that takes the water and the, and the leaves out. And then the berries roll down into a truck and we deliver them out that way to the processing plant. But yeah, that's, that's typically it. I mean, I basically made a, a three day project sound easy, but. <laughs> right. I know. Uh, well, that's what they say experts really are able to explain complex things in simple terms and you just did that so we know there's a lot more goes into it just to shift gears a little bit it's really fascinating everything you've shared but certainly they support biodiversity as well can you tell us a little bit more about that in a sense we do monoculture right because we have one variety of plant we tend to grow now we don't grow a lot of it in our area so we have a lot of diversity in terms of what's grown around here but we have a lot of waterways that very quickly, once you build them, become a little ecosystem for frogs and ducks and, and however many other types of insects inhabit the water. We have lots of birds around. That's sort of our area as well. We're right on the Fraser River, so we have quite a diverse ecosystem to start with. We've had bears on the farm, we've had deer on the farm, and we are not by any stretch in the middle of nowhere. And then we also have, as we build our farm, we create habitat, like huge population of native bumblebees, the honeybees, uh, we bring obviously a lot of hives in to supplement the bumblebees, but there's a lot of native hives as well. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting to see, and, and I follow it a lot as well. I actually keep a journal of when certain things happen just to see if I can see any sort of pattern in, you know, when this happened and the next year and how it correlates to, you know, maybe the yield or when we started harvesting. It's also research, you know, you keep looking and looking and looking, and then all of a sudden you never know when that pattern's going to emerge. And that's just the nature of living in harmony, the seasons and land and biodiversity, which farmers are really very much doing beyond what it is that they're producing. That really is interesting. Thank you so much for that, Brian. We'll be right back. After the break, we'll hear more from Brian DeWitt, owner of The Bog, Riverside Cranberry Farm, about family farms and agri-food and recipes for the season. This is Food for the Future, and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL, Curious Casts, and where you get your podcasts. I'm Peggy O'Neill, host of Food for the Future. We're speaking about cranberry farming and eating with Brian DeWitt, owner of Riverside Cranberry Farm in Fort Langley, British Columbia. Brian, your livelihood is cranberries. You're a definite expert. We just established that before the break. What's your favorite cranberry recipe? I would have to say I love it like a cranberry lemon muffin. Cranberry and citrus, it, it sounds weird because the cranberry is a very tart fruit already, but it complements citrus fruit so well. If you mix pure cranberry juice and pure mango juice, it is so good. I, I just absolutely love stuff like that. But there, again, there's so many different recipes. It's, it's a very versatile fruit because it contrasts so well with a lot of other sweeter berries or sweeter products like chocolate. We have a cranberry sauce in our portfolio of products that we make off the farm. And my kids put that stuff on so many different products. And that's one of our goals as well is to just get people thinking outside the box with cranberries. It's kind of being pigeonholed into it's a Thanksgiving or a Christmas berry. Cranberry sauce typically is associated with turkey but it goes it goes all over the place we do a cranberry pepper jelly as well that everybody raves about it when they when they try it and i have an employee from australia who had never seen a cranberry in his life prior to this year's harvest and he eats it with uh, peanut butter every day for lunch 
cranberry pepper jelly and peanut butter. Wow, that's amazing. And the cranberry mango, I'd never thought of that. Yeah. But lately, I've really just wanted the taste of the cranberries. So what I do is just per cup of cranberry, I like it tart, no more than a tablespoon and a half. And I use maple syrup, just a little bit of water. It is delicious. I've been eating it with my yogurt and it is so good. So there's really a lot of interesting ways to enjoy cranberries all year round. So nutritious. What is one of the most interesting ways you've seen cranberries used either in cooking or baking? We, we just actually had a contact that bought quite a few cranberries. They, they made a sauce out of it and they made a cranberry clove ice cream, a seasonal Christmas ice cream. I haven't sampled it yet. They, they said they were going to bring a couple pints over uh, once they have it ready in the stores. But yeah, that, that would probably be the more unique one off the top of my head that I can think of. But we have lots of small little businesses out here that are buying cranberries. They're making like a cranberry honey mead or a cranberry gin or, you know, it's, it's very popular in alcohol. And we have a lot of small distillery style businesses around here or small breweries lots of little cranberry beers kicking around. So there's, again, you just be creative. You can do all kinds of different things with them. Yeah, be creative. And the call to be creative is going to generate new ideas. And so I love that that's part of your brand at the Riverside Cranberry Farms concept is, you know, to push the boundaries and have no limits in cranberries that can be used for so many different things, which is very creative. And it brings me to the point that this show, we try to bring the humanities to today's food dialogue. And that includes big ideas and family farmers share a common experience. You know, they may not all be growing cranberries, yet they're specialists in their own field. So whether it's the big ideas or whether it's the specializations, what do you think is unique that cranberry farmers, family farmers bring the world? I think the idea of family farming itself, just being, you know, the tradition of passing a farm down to your children, that's disappearing in today's world because as small family farms get more and more pressure from whatever the outside forces are, uh, you know, inflation, cost of inputs, a lack of cash flow, cash inputs coming in. You start running into some of those challenges. I mean, a, a big one today is actually that this, the next generation may not even want to farm. You know, I have five children. I have 40 acres. Uh, not all my kids will be on this farm in the future. Maybe none of them will. The, uh, the idea of like training your children in a field that maybe they will have an opportunity to take over one day. It's becoming more and more foreign and corporate farms are becoming the norm. So it's becoming more of a challenge, I think, for families to actually stay together and farm. And and for us, it's it's awesome when we harvest. I mean, my, my dad still drives a truck up to the processing plant. He's 74 years old. Yeah, she spends hours in, every day in the store on when we're doing tours, just working behind the counter. My kids are all in some capacity out in the field or helping out. Uh, my wife's family comes by and takes part. So I, th- I think there's something to celebrate in that, right? Where it's mm-hmm. it's not always about how much money do we make this year, but it's it's spending that quality time together. And I think that's personified in a lot of cranberry farms. You know, there's obviously the big corporate farms, but if you talk to a lot of farmers, you're going to find that it's a common story that the family all comes together during harvest. And they're kind of proud, I guess, at the end of it, that they've all worked together to accomplish something. Yeah. And with all the challenges you talked about earlier in the show, whether that's the weather conditions, whether that's something changing, the berries just happen to not want to be as bountiful that season, whatever it is, all those things that you do come together, you work together, you live together, you laugh together. It's hard work, but lots of laughs on the farm. So this uniqueness of experience and uh, this worldview of way of life. And I think you said it best, Brian, it's something to celebrate. And it's part of the reason why we do the show. So do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? 
I'd actually like to put a plug in for uh, Johnston Marsh out in Ontario. They're actually pioneers in a way in, in what they do. And if, you know, for those of you out, out east who can't make it out west here to experience the, the agritourism that we have on our farm, I would recommend trying to make your way out to Johnson's Marsh. They've got a, a great farm there. It'll be an amazing experience and you'll see exactly what we do right in your own backyard. I would recommend that. And I would also recommend that wherever possible, support small businesses like that. Because without those small businesses, what we just talked about with the corporate farms versus the family farms, you're just going to see corporate farms. And there will be a a huge disconnect between you and where your food comes from. And that's very important to understand where you're buying your food. And if you can spend that money in your own backyard, that money will return back to you in another way somewhere. Wonderful final thought. And thank you for your generosity in uh, promoting your colleague, a a fellow farmer here in Ontario. There are cranberry farms across the nation. So look in your area to see where you can go. It's a wonderful destination, food tourism, but even better, the cranberries and absolutely enjoy year round. Thank you so much, Brian, for all that you and your family and all your partners do and also for the amazing cranberries that you grow. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking about big ideas with Brian DeWitt, owner of Riverside Cranberry Farm. Each week, to continue to envision our future in agri-food together, we leave you and your family or friends with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about? What could you make with Canadian-grown cranberries this season? Something to do? Search Riverside Cranberry Farm to see how one family shares their life in cranberry growing for global encouragement. Next week on the show, we'll air our holiday special. We'll be talking about faith and fellowship in family farming with Dave and Cheryl Bolton from the Middlesex Federation of Agriculture. Don't miss a show. Subscribe on Curious Cast and all other major podcast platforms. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, and you've been listening to the weekly show, Food for the Future. Thank you to our Platinum Elite Level sponsor, Burn Bray Farms, Eggs for Life. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday on 980 CFPL, Curious Cast, and where you get your podcasts.